0: Welcome back to the Daily Bailey podcast, bringing you your daily dose of athlete mental health today. I'm so lucky to sit down with my friend and mentor, Margot Farrell. As an American-born swimmer, she is notably known for her astonishing performance at the 2012 Summer Olympics, where she represented France. There, she earned a bronze medal in the 4x200 meter freestyle relay. She was an all-American swimmer and two-year captain at Indiana University where she earned her bachelor's in journalism, then later earned her master's in journalism at the University of Southern California. Margot is a mental health advocate and currently serves as the director of marketing for the Root Center for Advanced Recovery in Connecticut. I have to say, I know Margot personally, and she is one of the kindest, smartest women I've ever met. And as you all just heard, she is so talented in many facets of her life. We actually met when she was a morning news anchor for Fox 61 News in Connecticut, when I was an intern and she was my mentor, and may I add, the most incredible mentor a young woman in the industry could ask for. So, Margo, welcome to my
1: podcast. I am excited to be here, Bailey. What a transformation. And as I saw you, you were an intern, and now here you are launching your podcast.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You are my first official guest, and I could not be more honored to have you. Well, I'm excited to dive in here. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your journey with swimming. How did
1: you first start? So I grew up a swimmer because my mom was a swimmer, so she uh, wanted to make sure that my brother and I could swim. She didn't really care if we did it at a competitive level, but she wanted to make sure we tried it. So my brother dipped off, I stayed with it, and it ended up being the sport out of all the sports that I tried that I was the one that I was strongest at. And having that connection with my mother, it just kind of made this bond where it felt comfortable and natural to go swimming. And as I got older, um, I realized that was going to be the sport that I stuck with. And my mom, part of the reason we had that bond was that she's a French citizen. Now she's actually an American citizen as well. She just got it this past summer. But um, that means that I grew up as a dual citizen. So my mother, having been just French for the majority of my life, she was a swimmer and represented France in her youth and mm-hmm. she went to Europeans she went to worlds and just missed the 76 Olympics by 100 of the second so it was always my own personal goal to swim in the Olympics kind of to give that back to my mom as like the one last piece she didn't get because I mean candidly speaking my mom was much faster than me actually <laughs> <laughs> oh um, yeah she swam at the time when all the East Germans were doping and nobody could prove it and she was 15 years old, like fifth in Europe, seventh in the world. Wow. Yeah. So she had a lot going on and, and to see her get to that point and then not make the Olympics, it kind of was a fuel in the back of my mind. Of course, every kid when they're starting out says they want to go to the games, but it's, you know, as you get older, you realize that that, you know, percentage dwindles down. And as I got older, it was the thought in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something that was necessarily... It was more like a dream, but it didn't feel like a reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Just kind of like something that I would think about like, oh, wouldn't this be amazing? Mm -hmm. And starting in ninth grade, I started to swim in France and was doing really well at like the junior nationals and and qualified for the senior nationals when I um, was a sophomore, when I was a freshman and swam and when I was a sophomore in high school. And from there, I just kind of got exposed to the national level of swimming. So I was around 16 years old at that point. Um, Around that year was when I made my first U.S. Trial Cup, and then I um, was competing as well for France. Now, the reason why I could compete for the two of them, a lot of people always ask them, at that point in time I wasn't associated to either country per se, because I wasn't on a national team. Mm -hmm. Once you make a national team for any country, you are associated with that country for 18 months. Mm -hmm. So if I were to sit out, let's say after European Championships when I made that national team in in my sophomore year, Mm -hmm. if I wanted to switch and let's say be American, I would have to not compete for 18 months. So for me, it just didn't make sense. I'd already, you know, made a national team. My first one being my sophomore year in college where I went to Europeans. And I was in the same relay. I was in at the Olympics. We got a silver medal. And from that point forward, I was French only in the eyes of athletics. So for me, that was fine. People are like, you know, did you wish you went for the U.S.? And honestly, no. Um, people always asked, do you feel more French or more American? And I always said that when I swam, I felt more French. I had... Um, People who coach me also coach my mom. Mm -hmm. I had uh, one of my mom's old teammates and kind of arch nemesis was one of my coaches (laughs) at uh, World (laughs) University Games. And I swam in pools that my mom would swam and had records in. It was just the connection I had with her. So that's how I got into swimming. And that was kind of my journey as to how I had my sights set on the Olympics and, Mm -hmm. you know, a shortened version of the, uh, what was it, at least 20 years span of my life. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. I love that. Like how
0: sports can really bond people together, especially like the family bond. But did you ever feel like a added sense
1: of pressure, like filling these big shoes that your mom has set forward for you? So yes and no. Um, I think, you know, my mom was one of those parents who wasn't necessarily an intense stage parent, if you will. Having gone right. through it herself, she knew what it's like to, to be a swimmer. And she also knew, obviously, what I was like and my temperament. <laughs> and um, she knew that hey, if I got pushed too far, I was going to get disgusted with the sport and back off and, like, want to be out. Yeah. And she also knew that a lot of coaches have a tendency to overtrain kids, especially at a young age. And then they get to the point where... They're at the end of high school and they either hate the sport or they don't have much left to squeeze out of them to get that much better in college. So my mom really held me back for a long time. It wasn't even until ninth grade that I started swimming every day, like all six days. So it was much different. You know, when I went to college, I had just started doing doubles and it was really just kind of to supplement high school swimming. Mm -hmm. It was twice a week for an hour and 15 minutes. And when I got to college, I had teammates who'd been doing doubles since eighth grade. So it was very, very different in terms of my uh, experience towards it. And so in that sense, I didn't didn't feel the pressure because I knew my mom was kind of, you know, in tune with what was going on. But on the back end of that, I always kind of put pressure on myself. Um, And obviously knowing that uh, about my mom, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily my parents, although, you know, they are a driving factor. Uh, It just was, once I kind of got it in my mind, I'm a perfectionist by nature, so a lot of times, even if there's subtle pressures from other people, I think you get to a certain point, you know, high level or not in athletics where certain people will put the stress on themselves. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that case with anything. And I think the higher you go, the more stress you put on yourself, whether it's outside pressure or not, there's still a certain level of base stress that the athletes putting on themselves.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that. I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself. I feel like we're both perfectionists as you said And through my recruiting process, I was the most stressed, like for field hockey and playing field hockey and tennis in college. I've been able to manage my time, but like the amount of like stress that I feel for the recruiting, the uh, incoming recruiting process and prospects. Can you tell me a little bit about how that process was like for you? How did you end up
1: choosing Indiana? So uh, the recruiting process was actually really stressful. I'll agree with you on that one. Um, <laughs> my parents, so my mom did school in France, my dad went to a small community college, and I'm the oldest. So we didn't have experience with you know, American universities and athletics and scholarships and all that kind of stuff. And because at that point, my junior year, I had an Olympic trial cup. For the United States, it put me, I mean, I was in like the top 10 probably of the recruits in the country. Wow. And, um, you know, that meant I was getting letters every day, just bombarded in my mailbox by every university across the country, um, from Division three to Division one, And then it was kind of just, you know, I knew I wanted to go to Division one, but then it was wheedling it down, and what does that mean? And um, picking the five schools, and it's you know it's intense. You get forty eight hours on your recruiting trip, and they try to jam every single minute in. So I remember going from Indiana uh, and then to USC and then to UCLA all in the span of about three weeks. I was completely exhausted. So you know, going to the West Coast well. <laughs> twice in like the span of two weeks for forty eight hours um, was. Exhausting, you know. I was 17 years old. I was in high school, and um, it was a lot to balance. Especially because when you're there, it's so quick, Mm -hmm. and you know, having been on the other side of it, I know there's a bit of a veil, you know, in terms of what coaches and athletes tell the recruits. Exactly, um, because the grass isn't always greener on the other side, but. Uh, you know, I know from that end, and it's stressful on the other end because they're shuffling you from academic advisor meetings to the coach meetings to individual meetings to meetings with the captains to a team activity to a sporting event. Like it's it's yeah. nonstop, and, and like, you're so young. Like you're 17, yeah. you're making the biggest like. Decision of your life, and you're not there like with your parents, you know. So you're coming back, and I'd be coming back, and they're asking me what I like. But I'm like, I-, I don't, you know. And, <laughs> the dining hall, the food was good. Yeah, I'm like, I didn't even go there. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And so it was, uh, it was just a lot. Um, and then it was also anxiety provoking when I can- I canceled two trips. I committed to IU and canceled Notre Dame and Tennessee, mm-hmm. and uh, that was stressful too. Tennessee was really understanding, and like not to name names, but uh, Notre Dame was not. Yeah. And uh, so you know, just being seventeen and having to make that decision and I will always remember actually the Tennessee coach being awesome and saying, you know, that she hoped, this was was one of the assistant coaches, she hoped that, you know, that was her goal for other recruits so that they had the feeling I had with IU for Mm -hmm. Tennessee and that she wished me the best of luck. Um, So that was really nice because that's really what it should be. And I would tell athletes who are in that process to go with your gut feeling, to try and ignore that pressure that is there. I would even say, you know, it's hard obviously because you're trying to get the best offer Allow some spacing between mm-hmm. your recruiting trips, um, you know maybe not trying to knock them all at once, but you, different coaches have different styles. My coach put a lot of pressure on me to sign, um, telling I was at a recruiting trip at another school when he was telling me basically I had till the end of the weekend to give him a yes or no where my scholarship offer was off the table. Wow. And I liked IU mm-hmm. and I loved UCLA but it ultimately came down to, and I was at UCLA when that pressure was being put on me. And I was like, I like the school, but I don't know. And yeah. Back and forth. And ultimately I came to the decision that UCLA might be better later in life. You know how I went to USC for grad school. I mm-hmm. said to him, I said, you know, with the amount of vacation we get, which is none. Uh, I said, you know, I'm not going to fly home across the, the entire country to be home for three days because I miss, you know, we we only get like four days vacation as it is. You fly home for an entire day and you fly back for an entire day. You've got the little three hour jet lag. It's, cross-country flights it's expensive and I just said you know for where I am I'm already gonna have to get on a plane to go to Indiana so it just felt like for me you know all the stuff I'd want to experience in LA I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't have the time so I ended up going back out to L.A. for grad school. So it worked out. But, um, yeah, that was – once it was over, it was fine because then I was, like, free sailing for senior year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't have to write a – I didn't even have to write a college essay. Oh, my god! Um, oh, I that's got, nice. I got really lucky there. Yeah, The yeah. Common App. No, not for Margo. Yeah, no. Um, we actually had to do that in English class, too. They said, you're going to write a college <laughs> essay, and then it's convenient because you guys will all have it. And I raised my hand. I said, what if you're already in and you don't have to write one? Oh, my this your, your, oh, anyway. your classmates
0: hated you. They loathe. <laughs> That comment. I
1: was like, all right, well, then I'll write one for funsies. <laughs> oh
0: my God. So, walk me through this. So, you go through this stressful recruiting process and then you get to Indiana. What's like your daily schedule like? Like, what was that like? Oh my gosh, absolute hell. Uh, <laughs> That's lo- a common thread. I've heard that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, as I got older and I, and I know more people from across the country and even across the world who swam, it's just. You talk to anybody and they all have their gripes with coaches and it's like, like I just said, no, it's not, any team's not better than the other. They all have their problems and the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. So, you know, there's going to be problems at every school, which is why I just say for any athlete, especially at a high level, just find that connection and really trust your gut. But at the end of the day, I mean, you have to look at this as a business mm-hmm. and that's really what I what I came to terms with after the fact is that it is a business, you know, there's a price tag on you. They, that's how much you're worth. You're being paid essentially through your scholarship. And once the four years is done, like you're out the door and they got the next set in. So it is stressful. Uh, my first year, you know, I started to feel homesick and the training was really like, not what I imagined. My coach had kind of sold me on an idea that it was going to be quality over quantity and it was the complete opposite Uh, like really really high yardage program super high volume and intense and it just it wore on me and I kind of came to a cracking point at the beginning of my sophomore year Mm -hmm. and that was like my first probably first real experience like opening up and saying like I'm going through depression Mm -hmm. I mean I'd had moments in high school my senior year I had a shoulder injury and I had been swimming separately from all my friends and then ended up not being able to swim at the championships that year and so Mm -hmm that definitely put me into a depressive funk. I, I, you know, I could count a million times back in my career, but that sophomore year, that really was the first time I remember, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to change my clothes. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything. And when you're forced, I mean, I've literally had my coach show up at my apartment to pick me up for swim practice before. Um, so it's, you know, when you're forced and you're really like seen in this light where you can't be sick, you can't be hurt, nothing. um It's it's hard because you're struggling with that mental aspect compared to the physical aspect. And in swimming, it's the type of sport where if you go more than, you know, two, three days, you start to lose that aerobic base. And so it's it's a, it's a tough sport in that sense that you kind of have to really keep doing it. And coaches, while they want to, and I think more of them are acknowledging mental health, it's kind of a... Let's get your athletics. And then we're also worrying about your mental health. Right. And it's not being seen as the same. And I'm not saying that physical health was necessarily regarded that well. Um, I can... Think back on many occasions where I was forced to swim through injuries. I mean, most notably at the Olympics with a torn labrum that I was told I was faking. Um, You know, that was just one of many. I was—I had a severe tendonitis in my shoulder, and my coach wouldn't let me take time off because if you get a cortisone injection, you're not supposed to do anything on it for about 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And um, he told me that he needed me in the meet that weekend, so I was going to swim the whole weekend, uh, swim the meet, and then the team doctor literally came to the pool, which was not you know common. Came to the pool, and I went into the trainer's office he just gave me a shot in my arm right after the meet. And he, my coach said that I should do it that way because then I would have Saturday afternoon off Sunday off. He'd make me kick on Monday. So I wouldn't use my arms. Then I'd be good to go by Tuesday. Wow. So it was just, you know, whenever you think you were in a good spot, something would happen. <laughs> um, whether it would be, You know, Maybe you get slammed with a test or you get a bad grade and then you have bad practice and your coach is yelling at you about this and you just feel overwhelmed and you feel like there's no outlet, Mm -hmm. Um, especially because, as you mentioned, what was my day-to-day schedule? I mean, I was in the pool at 5.30. I was usually out of the pool by 7.30 unless the practice ran over that, but people who had 8 a.m. classes could get out at 7.30. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, depending on your class schedule, you'd go to the weight room and lift then. That would be an hour to an hour and a half lift. Then I'd go to class. Uh, if you're not in the morning lift group and you need to do afternoon at 1 p.m., you go back and lift. Then by 3 p.m., you're over at the pool, 2.45. You're not leaving until 5, 5.15 when practice is done. After that, people would go to training tables to eat, which was like the athlete dining hall. Mm-hmm. And then I a lot of times I had night classes too. Um, I can specifically think of a schedule in my senior year where I would go – um, from 5.45 till about 8 o'clock at night, um, just straight. And uh, it was a lot. It was, you know, NCAA says you're not allowed to train more than 20 hours. I want to say we were training upwards of 30 um, all the time. So, you know, you're not allowed to train in the off-season, quote-unquote. That doesn't exist in swimming. We're swimming more than 20 hours all year long. They, you know, my coach, I kind of strong-armed into a little bit more vacation, but most people didn't have more than a week off. Um, in between, that just says the season as a whole. I would ask for like two to three, Uh, usually I got maybe two. And when I was younger growing up, like my mom, initially I wasn't even swimming summers um, until ninth grade was when I started swimming summer and in a 50 meter pool, which is what they uh, compete in internationally competitions. So it's it's like looking back, I can't even decipher like which part was the most stressful because it was like, there was no time to think. Like the whole day when you ask like what a day-to-day schedule was, obviously it changed over the four years as to when I did what, but those, three main practices, the the lifting, the two swimming, Mm -hmm. those didn't really change. I mean there was three lifts total, there wasn't as many as swimming. And then Wednesday and Saturday were the only singles and every other day was a double. So it just was and it didn't matter if it was March, it didn't matter if it was October, August, whatever, like that was just year-round schedule. Mm -hmm. schedule. Yeah. How did this impact
0: you socially? Like how did you have a social life with all this going on?
1: So by nature and getting older I kind of realized looking back, just my personality, you know, struggling with anxiety and depression as a whole since I've been young. Mm -hmm. um, I, as as extroverted as I am when people see me or they think I am just with my, my job and everything, I like to say I'm an introverted extrovert. I'm very comfortable being home alone and kind of a homebody. And when I was in college, yeah, I loved to go out and like have a good time. But then there were plenty of other times where I just really didn't want to. And I felt so homesick and just so tired and exhausted and trapped. Trapped was really the main word I used to describe how I felt at times. And it just was like it was unbearable, um, at times that I didn't want to do anything. And looking back sometimes like, well, I wish I maybe did more, went to this bar that I never went to. I did this. And you know, I think I have to not live in regret and just say that was what I needed at that time, you know, and that's what made me happy then. And like, yeah, hindsight's 2020. And maybe you say, oh, I wish I went out more. I did this more. And it's like, well, that's what I could do mentally. That's all I could muster up. But i I had a boyfriend in college who wasn't an athlete, so that also was that was helpful in the sense that his friend group was different mm-hmm. um so that was a blessing and a curse, if you will, because I had a different source of people to, to meet. Mm-hmm. But also when I'd see him going to do stuff that I couldn't do because of swimming, it was annoying. Right. Um, you know, like even just simple things like going out on a weeknight or just, you know, stupid stuff, being able to go uh spring break and CAAs yeah. for women was spring break every single year. So I never had a spring break in all of college. Um, it's just, it's, you know, those were kind of the, the main struggles. Were there any resources offered to you to help with all this? So we did have a uh, sports psychologist. I didn't have, like, really great response. Very nice guy. Just didn't really do much for me. Mm-hmm. And then I got sent to another therapist. There was a therapist who worked through IU Athletics, but he had, his like, a separate practice, and he specialized in eating disorders. And... Um, and athletes, Mm -hmm. which was something I've struggled with as well. Um, not, you know, full blown anorexia or bulimia or things to that extent, but just disordered eating and having been in a bathing suit my whole life and Mm -hmm. very restrictive eating, Mm -hmm. a lot of weighing, a lot of just, you know, picking yourself apart. Um, and I went to see him and that was my first experience with therapy was after kind of that snap my sophomore year where I just felt like I couldn't take it. I wanted to leave. I wanted to quit. And there was that pressure where if I quit, I couldn't stay at IU because um, you would lose your scholarship. So you know, I was I was torn because I loved my friends and I liked the school. So it was just a lot on on your on my mind. And so yeah, I tried to utilize the sources that were there, which included you know going to see this therapist. But I don't think mentally I was. In the place where I understood therapy necessarily and the work you have to do, I think I just went and used it as a event session to have somebody unbiased who was there who would just listen to me cry and, you know, complain yeah. and just be an ear for me for an hour. And now that I'm older, I see that there were definitely things I could have done. I don't think I ever – I did work on myself. It was just kind of keeping me at bay. Yeah. Um, and that's really what was offered. Other than that, it's – you know, and that was because – well, and then my, bo- my boss, my coach started noticing that, you know, because there were girls, he wanted to lose weight and then really? girls were losing too much weight. And so it just was, you know, I, I just, just, I could get into a million stories. Like one that comes to mind is my best friend who picked up a 20 pound weight for pulleys and my coach telling her that that was about how much she should lose. Oh yeah. my gosh. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, there were resources, but I'm not going to say that there were a plethora of them. Wow. That's.
0: So I was going to ask you, you know, was there like a pressure to really regulate your body? I mean, you're burning so many calories just even before breakfast. And, you know, your coach is telling some girls to lose weight, to regulate their bodies, to control them. There's this huge stigma now around uh, mental health and should you go to therapy? And I feel like it's getting more normalized. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the conversation about therapy now? I mean, especially around eating disorders.
1: I think the conversation is starting to come to light more. I think especially with social media, you're just seeing more people's stories yeah. and it's kind of, it, that's the great side of social media is you see one person say, Hey, I struggle from this. And another right. person feels strong enough to say, Hey, me too. And mm-hmm. then you start building that circle yeah. uh, for women, especially in women in sports and even, you know, women in swimming, your, your whole body's on display. Yeah. You're just wearing a bathing you're suit. You're in a, ba- a bathing suit constantly. And not only are you comparing yourself to other people on your team, are you beating them? Are you beating the other girls in the pool? And then if you're not, then, you know, sometimes it's just an easy comparison to be like, well, she looks a little more fit than me, or, you know, she's smaller than me, she's taller than me, she's got, you know, stronger arms, she's got skinnier legs, uh, whatever it is, right. it's, you know, you, you put that on yourself, because you're trying to think of anything. And I was fortunate enough that I didn't have my coach screwing with my head for my weight. That was just on me. Yeah. Um, but I have friends who were on the opposite boat. And some of them were strong enough that they were like, I don't care. and yeah. I'm like, whatever you say, doesn't matter. And then I had others who were totally screwed up from it. Um, you know, there was one group, the spinning group, and it was only women. And then there was another group, which was the coordination group. And everybody would joke around that the spin group was the fat group. Um, and, it was all, and the girls would joke around like, yeah, we're in the fat group. And I was in the coordination group, which was just trying to make sure that we didn't like trip over on feet, which didn't help. But, <laughs> um, that was what I was in was my group. But yeah, there was, you know, I remember one time my coach telling me I was probably the thinnest I'd ever been. And he was like, you look really fit. You look very lean. Mm. And I mean, I was, but I just remember that comment. And I also just remember my friend's comment about the 20 pounds. And I was like, My friend who was told to to lose 20 pounds and he was told that's what 20 pounds feels like got fifth at NCAAs, which still holds the Big Ten record 10 years later. So swimming and really any sport, yeah, is there a certain level of fitness that, that helps you succeed? Of course, but... There's not this perfect regulation of the perfect body and you need to do this. There's not even the perfect training regimen, especially for swimming. What I needed and what my friend who got fifth at NCAAs needed, we trained completely differently. Right.
0: And health looks different on different bodies. And I I saw something on social media. Speaking of social media, like you could follow the same workout plan, diet plan, everything as the next person. And you could look completely different. Yeah. And again, like you said, like your friend, she was fifth. Like
1: she's so successful. I was... Told, um, you know, I was, I was going to say something about this on social media the other day actually because it came up. Because mm-hmm. Argan, I believe it's Argan, who's no longer um, doing body fat percentages and like weight monitoring of female athletes. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, like, I kind of see both sides of it Mm -hmm. on one side. If you're really looking at it just from a statistic fat point of view, and you really just want to monitor, like, this is the body fat percentage I was at. And this, you know, just have a strategic plan and also knowing the athlete, is that athlete okay with that information, right? Is that athlete someone who's going to take that to heart, or is that like I have plenty of friends who don't care? Someone could be like, lose ten pounds. They're like I'm happy as I am. Yeah. So to that athlete, maybe that's helpful, or maybe an athlete wants to know that and says, "Hey, can I speak with a dietitian? I want to get better." Have that be that person's story because female, especially, and just men and women at that age, you're still so young and yeah, you're so still developing. You're still developing. You know, you think of college kids as like they're adults, but they're you know it's, it's high school but without your parents. Right. Um, you know, he's 21 years old. I think back to that. I'm like, oh my goodness, and you know, what do you even know at that point when you're still, you're so used to living under your parents and listening to everybody? Is now you're on your own and you've got somebody who's telling you about your weight and this, that, the other. You don't have your parents, you know, your friends. You're just like, what? Yeah. And um, I was on the national team, and uh, we were getting all our physicals done, and there was an old school, like fat. Tester, if you will, was like the metal prongs. I don't know if you've ever seen it, like instead of like a bod pod or any of those new methods, Mm -hmm. it literally was clamps. And I remember him clamping my arm and telling me that I needed to lose weight and tone up. And that summer I got a silver medal at the European Championships.
0: And and going back to what your coach was saying about you know compliment oh you look lean here you could be really
1: unhealthy you, you know you could have been oh at that point restricting I was and weighing and- myself every morning every morning before <laughs> practice I would go and stand on the scale oh my god um if I knew my friends were going out drinking and eating that night mm-hmm. like. Limiting what I was eating. I mean, there were times I wasn't eating for morning practice. I would have a yogurt and a peanut butter and jelly before afternoon. Um, You know, just, and sometimes it was just not even because you wanted to, but because you were just running around so much, you didn't have time. And so a lot of times it'd be I'd grab a peanut butter and jelly at the little snack stop over where the pool is and a yogurt and just go downstairs, cram it in my mouth, and then go in the pool. Um, That's
0: the problem with, and when once you get that, Positive reinforcement for looking this way,
1: you're like, Oh, well I look great. I got to keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it feeds um, into it. It does. And you know, on that team where I was told that I needed to tone up, um, it then just, you know, I compare myself to other people. Well, yeah. look at her, look at her. And you know, like you've said, you could do the same thing as someone else and it doesn't mean you're going to look the same. And for me, it was comparing to a completely different culture. I mean, I was comparing myself to French swimmers who eat French, cuisine, which, you know, in Europe, there's significantly fewer preservatives. They eat a lot fresher food. They eat smaller portions. Uh, It's a different lifestyle and you can't compare the two. And Mm -hmm. so I was comparing myself as an American, you know, living in the U S and then I was a dual citizen. And when I went to France, yeah, there was a difference in my body composition than Mm -hmm. the others, but I didn't think it it was a detriment to anything. Like it still got me on that team. It still got me in that pool and it still got me that medal.
0: Do you think social media, was really impactful in your story or do you think that was that's more of a
1: co- commonality now well social media wasn't as big when I was swimming yeah um like Instagram came out my senior year and so if that really didn't play in if anything I noticed it start to play in afterwards as it got bigger mm-hmm. because that's started to kind of take off at the Olympics, like people were posting on Instagram. At that point, I didn't even know you follow people back. I, I thought it was just a gallery for your photos. So oh I thought God. I was one of those a people that gallery. said, and following zero. Um, and I'd like like my own pictures, and I'd get like confused when I got likes from other people. I was like, what does this mean? <laughs> Who are these people? Look I at me. Yeah. put colors on my picture. <laughs> So, social media wasn't a factor then, but it was afterwards. And um, looking back, you know, it would give me a lot of like regret, like, oh my gosh, that looks so cool, or I wish I cared more when I swam, I wish I didn't hate it as much when I was there, and I wish I appreciated this, and you know, all those what ifs and the comparisons. And I I always say, like, one of my favorite quotes is comparison is the thief of joy, and that's in anything. Um, you know, you, especially now with social media, I found that I don't scroll as much. If anything, I'm scrolling more on my work account because it's a, it's a mental health and addiction account. So, a lot of the accounts that we follow are positive, and you know, have these great testimonials and they're uplifting. And it's not to say that my personal feed isn't love my friends and, and love to connect, but you know, when you see a friend is engaged a friend bought a new house a friend got a new job or whatever it is right. even if it's not something you want right at that moment it still might look shiny and new and oh cool like they're just having such a good time or such a good ride right now in their life and it's just you don't showcase the bad
0: of course it's and what you want people it's the it's the highlights of your life that you show and Margo, we're competitors like we we are athletes we like to compete. if i see someone got like a
1: new something they're going on a trip i'm like why don't i have that yeah. why can't i get that no it's 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 very true um and it, it plays with your head and i saw that a lot as i went back to swimming after the olympics because yeah. that's when it was, it was definitely bigger when I stopped swimming, it was really bigger, and, and seeing every time I got to championship season, seeing my friends on, on social media, at meets, yeah. it really made me, like, sad. You know, yeah. I'd be like, oh, how I miss that. And yeah. then I would think about everything else that went into it, and I was like, you know what, I got what I needed out of it, mm-hmm. and you just gotta let, it, you gotta let it go. You can't think of the what ifs or I wish, because there's always going to be those.
0: And so, as a senior in college studying journalism, you went to the Olympics, how do you feel about the media coverage of athletes at the Olympics
1: when you were there? When I was there, to be honest, I didn't know what was being covered about the athletes um, mm-hmm. because I was just in the village in a bubble and we're not watching TV or anything. Yeah. My name was spelled wrong in a piece that aired in <laughs> Connecticut. Um <there's> that. <laughs> But uh, you know, it was a, I, I was you know profiled in, in, on uh, NBC and uh, on a couple of stations and papers and stuff, and and that was fine. Uh, swimming is a weird sport; not everybody understands it. So I've had definitely wrong times, wrong events, events that don't exist, um, just all <laughs> sorts of things written about me. Um, yeah. But. You know, I wasn't one of like I'm not the you know the Kobe Bryant of swimming. I, I use him because he was there, and I and I passed him in the village. I'm not I'm not the Usain Bolt of track and field, so you know I wasn't going to have that pressure on me in terms of the public eye with the press. Mm-hmm. But my roommate was the you know a Usain bolt of swimming, if you will. Uh she was the first French woman to win a gold medal. She broke Janet Evans' record, which for anybody who knows swimming, um, it was no one had come close to it in 20 years. And she broke it. And she was really good. And then when she came back to the London Olympics, she had stopped swimming. She swam in uh what was it? Sydney or Athens, I think it was Athens, then Beijing and then she made London. But after Beijing, she had a baby, she stopped swimming for two years, came back for two years and then made the Olympics. And when she was there, she didn't make semifinals and the French press ripped her apart. And she was in the room crying. And I remember saying to her, I was like, what do you care? And at the time I was someone who I was not, like, a swim geek, if you will. Like, when I was out of the pool, I didn't care. I don't want to look at results. I don't want to know who I'm swimming against. So whatever. <laughs> so we got back in the pool, and – we got back from the pool, and she's crying. And I said to her, why are you crying? And she's like, oh, this, 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 and there. she's talking about everything they say. And I was like, homegirl, you have medals from the Olympics. You have such a pass. I was like, you stopped, had a baby, <laughs> and then came back. I was like, just for you making the team. Like, a blog. Yeah. Like, who cares? And – For her, it was kind of refreshing. And I was like, let's go to the mall because we're going out tonight because we're both done swimming. And, you know, it was like taking her away from that because she was used to that pressure. So I was exposed to it in that sense. Yeah. um, Seeing how my friend was being treated. Yeah. Um, Very plain as day. And, you know, for me, it was like, hey, I couldn't believe you did that. Because especially me trying to come back, the fact that she did that and still was able to get first place in France You know, they're coming after her like she should be winning the gold medal. I'm like, she's she's 10 years older than she was, and she's had a baby, and she's still there. Like, it's – you know, people expect – it's like the Gabby um – I, it's uh, it's like this summer the um, Simone Biles, Simone yeah. Biles. I, I, Simone I, I was Biles. gonna say
0: Naomi Osaka just pulled out of the Australian Open and yeah. we have Simone Biles you know they're all creating new waves and new conversations around athlete mental health I know we at Fox were talk- we ran a story about this mm-hmm. and we were talking about Simone Biles what do you think about all this treating you know mental injuries
1: the same as physical I think it's about time we talk about it I think especially yeah. with athletes. Um, you know, I, I'll i be the first to say now that I I still do see a therapist. I started taking medication after college, probably something I should have been doing long before, but there was that stigma associated with it. And even myself, you know, even though I knew mental health is health, there was, you know, because other people didn't see it that way, you kind of hold it inside a little bit and, seeing other athletes coming out and speaking out about it, I think is awesome. I think that's where we see the strengths of social media. Um, You know, Michael Phelps came out and talked about it. There is such a thing about like the post Olympic depression and blues. A lot of athletes go through that and you look at Simone Biles and she is the best. I mean, she is the best in gymnastics that we've ever seen. And this year in particular, she's coming back, she's defending titles. So you already have a target on your back, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's always you know we win once and my coaches say winning the next year is harder because Mm -hmm. everybody wants to take you down nobody wants you know two-peat three-peat winners it's always harder after you win so she's coming in with everybody looking at her Mm -hmm. to do you know amazing things. She's getting backlash because her tricks are harder than other people. And they're saying that she's going to encourage people to get hurt because Mm -hmm. they're trying her tricks, which why do it if you can't do it? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go off a 20 foot jump uh, when I'm skiing because I know I can't do that. Right. right? So can I jump off a little bump? Yeah. But (laughs) I'm not going to Sean white it down the, down the mountain. And so already she's dealing with that. Then with everything that happened with George Floyd and the diversity movement and bringing to light kind of the systemic racism problems that we still have in this country, she was carrying that as a a black woman, a, a young adult, too. I mean, think about her age. She's still so young in her 20s. And She came into that carrying that movement on her back with a gold medal on her back, you know, Mm -hmm. leading the team with new people who were there at their first Olympics. Mm -hmm. No one talked about it. She had a death in her family that nobody was mentioning in the press. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no family and friends at the Olympics. She's in Tokyo. Her family's in the United States. She's competing in another country in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Most athletes, I mean, the biggest saying is it's not every four years. It's every day. And for this Olympics, it's not every four years. It was every five. And so for all the athletes, and I knew a lot of them who were training for the 2020 games, some of them didn't make the 2021 games. They couldn't, they couldn't keep going for another year for whatever reason. Some of them just could never get back to that level some of them it you know it just completely ruined them that year and others it was just such a mentally grueling year that then if maybe you had a chance or you know you thought you had a chance that you don't make it the next year it's like what was that extra year for yeah. and you know you see her with all of that and i just can't imagine I mean, I I really kudos to her for how she handled it Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, because I I mean, I was fighting back against people when I did do that story on Fox and the comments and people saying things and, well, why didn't she do it sooner? And you have no idea when that's going to hit you. She walked out onto the floor and maybe it hit her right when she walked into the stadium. You have no idea. It's not like you plan for when something's going to hit you and when you're going to process something. You know, I went to work, this is a completely separate example, but in a sense, I went to work 12 hours after I found out that my grandmother had passed. And when I was there in the moment that morning, I think I was, it was like the shock hadn't hit me. And then two hours into my shift, it was like, all of a sudden the light came out and I realized what was happening yeah, it hit you. and it hit me then, mm-hmm. you know, was I upset when I heard the news? Yes. But I don't think it sunk in until the next morning. Mm-hmm. So you have no idea if this is something she was already carrying and then you walk in or she gets in her room and she's like, I can't do this.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's not like she hasn't had an Olympic experience either. Right. She has one under her belt. And for people who are saying, well, she took somebody else's spot, she didn't. She gave a chance to the alternate because when you're a high-level country like the United States or you know, European countries, you get to bring alternates because mm-hmm. they have enough people at that level. And because she stepped down, an alternate had a chance to perform. And they might, they would not have had that opportunity had she done it. They were there for that specific reason. If Biles <laughs> fell and broke her leg, no one would have said anything if she had to sit out. Right. But because it was an internal thing that nobody could see, then everybody has their opinion on it as though they're qualified to say anything about it, which they're not.
0: Right. Exactly. So when you say like these moments of, I can't do this, I mean, as a public figure yourself, you know, as a, as a morning anchor, how did you deal with that public scrutiny?
1: And uh, oof, that's a loaded one. Um, <laughs> a lot of faith until you make it, honestly. Um, which is what you had to do in athletics a lot of time. You know, when yeah. I got up on the block at the Olympics, my I had had nine injections in my spine five days prior. Oh my gosh! Um, it's just something you you don't you try not to think about in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember anchoring six hours with a broken shoulder without knowing it was broken until after the show. I knew it was, oh it was hurt. T- I you're a workhorse. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, well, these are about gold medal. Well, <laughs> I fell the day prior and um, I fell the day prior skiing. And when I woke up the next morning, it was beyond pain. I ever realized. And I called the news desk and I said, "Am I the only one in today?" Because I knew Keith, my co-anchor, wasn't in. And they said yes. And so I was like, "So if I don't come in, nobody's there. You're like it's like, game yes. time. We got to push through." So I had. To go and I went in, and you could just like in the commercial break. I mean, my te- tears were streaming from my eyes, and I was like trying to grin and bear it. But you know, and I did. And I had viewers who, after I posted that I had a broken shoulder, some were saying like I could tell there was just something. Like you know, you try
0: wincing at the intro, you yeah, like, throwing you know, the tag and
1: exactly. <laughs> and so you know, but you you push through. I mean, I've I've swam and and gone on TV and in, in states that oh, I should not have. <laughs> Jeez.
0: So while we're wrapping things up, I need to ask you about your transition from the broadcasting world
1: to the Root Center. So why why did you make that choice to leave the broadcasting world? I think broadcasting is changing a lot. And mm-hmm. I think the pandemic really spearheaded that as well as the last election. Um, we saw and we are continuing to see the most division in our country that we've ever seen before. And I you know experienced situations where i've been heckled on the street, you know, been screamed at with, you know, foul language telling me to screw off, f off, um just because i had a Fox 61 mic in my hand and people who didn't like Fox News associated me as Fox News, were not at all affiliated and i would get wrath from them or you know covering a story and i'd be told it's stupid to cover that and i'm like, well, that's not my decision. I'm here. And it's just like you're under the public eye same as you are in swimming. It was the same thing. It was, you know, you're under the public eye of your bosses. You're under the public eye of everybody out in the world who's watching you. And you're also, you have to be on social media. And, you know, I had everything under the sun from people saying to me that they didn't like my outfit. Oh, did you lose weight? Oh, you look like you gained weight. Oh, like just people allowing themselves to speak and have an opinion about me and my life. Mm -hmm. And it was starting to wear on me because... You know, I started to see more of the division. I started to see the viewers going in two different directions, and people just fighting each other on social media. And it was just, I was like, "This is not the world like I want to live in. This is not journalism that I want to be a part of because it's not journalism anymore yeah. for the most part. It's opinions, it's scripted, it's you know, paid for. It's it's just it's not at all the same ball game as it used to be. Yeah. And I think kind of the higher ups, the higher network levels you know, played a factor in that and it trickled down to the local news stations, you know, whereas if Fox News was polarizing enough that they had people thinking Fox 61 was the same, enough to scream at them or write us nasty emails, that was done at that level. And then same thing, if people on the CNN side who are writing to us saying that we're too conservative or, you know, we were getting it from both ends, you're too liberal, you're too conservative, you're too this, that, and the other. And Everybody really wanted that from the news. It was like people really wanted like Fox, a really conservative centric station where they wanted CNN, a really liberal centric station. And just the idea of not being biased and of getting both sides that went out the window. And I don't know why and I don't know how it never came back, Mm -hmm. but I feel that there's a there's a lack of, you know, no bias. There's, it's, just, it's very apparent. I can name a ton of high-profile journalists where I know exactly where they stand along party lines. Mm-hmm. And that's just not okay. You should never know where a journalist stands politically. Right. And so between that, the backlash, the hyper-scrutiny, and just nonstop, when I took a second to look, it was like, wow, my life has been at this level for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just TV, it was swimming. And TV, I compared to swimming just without the physical aspect. It was still going to bed at 6 p.m. and waking up at 2 a.m. and being on air at 4 a.m. and not knowing which way my day was going to go. And when I would come in at 3, I didn't stop till 11. And it was like a hamster wheel. And sometimes you're doing a million things and the next thing you know, bam, you have an hour left on your shift. Breaking news erupts and you go there. You know, you couldn't plan for things outside of work necessarily. I can't tell you how many doctor's appointments or just regular appointments after work have canceled or it was just too unpredictable mm-hmm. and it really felt that same word i used earlier trapped yeah. i you know i was under a contract just so i was under a scholarship mm-hmm. and i just felt like i couldn't grow anymore i felt like i kind of reached my cap i you know started in a small market made a quick jump to a big market made a quick jump to a monday to friday anchor position and then it was like what else do i want yeah. you know i have i'm fortunate enough to work with the big 10 network so i get to still do some network stuff but mm-hmm. And that's different because it's it's sports and, you know, you're allowed to be biased. I can say I like the Yankees and, you know, the Red Sox stink and, and that's fine. <laughs> Don't tell me that. My first dog was named Fenway. That's, <laughs> your, that's a low blow Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we can go back and forth on that. It's, it's not us sitting here and saying COVID's real or COVID's not. Um, right, you know, right, it's It's a different kind of banter. And yeah. so when I knew that I could keep that and then serendipitously when I found this position, the Root Center for Advanced Recovery, which is a mental health and addiction clinic, I went there for a story and I loved mental health and addiction stories because I felt that they helped. And when I went there to this story, I found out that they were hiring for marketing. And I'd always been thinking of that because it kind of combines all of journalism Mm -hmm. and this job and and my new boss presented it as that opportunity where I've been able to take journalism and marketing and combine it. Mm -hmm. So I haven't given up that journalism background. I still get to do plenty of media where, you know, here I'm on a podcast or I get to do videos or whatever it is. But I also feel like I'm helping more. In news, I felt like I would get to the situation, there was nothing to do. The person was dead, the fire happened, whatever it was. And all I could do was say, hey, if you want to help the family, here's the crowdfunding page. Mm -hmm. At least now, not saying I'm going to spearhead fixing the opioid epidemic, but... If there's one person who sees a post that I did mm-hmm. and says, oh my gosh, like let me tell my friend or I need to get help or whatever it is, if there's one person who sees it, right. then that's more help that I did right there. Right. So it, it just made sense to me. It was more fulfilling. I felt like it was a place that I could grow while also not giving up on my journalism background. You know, I still do do stuff with the Big Ten Network and still do stuff with news and pitch things to them. And yeah. I have that capability to do all of it. But... I wasn't fulfilled anymore and I didn't want to... I wanted to live my life. I said it was so corny on my first day of work. um, I I was going to cry like an hour and a half into orientation. (laughs) And... It was because for the first time as corny as it sounds I felt like I was living my life like it was Mm -hmm. my life and I was in the driver's seat you were in control because everything else and that's not to say that my parents were like super super strict but to an extent I was looking to them I was looking to my coaches I really didn't have to make decisions I didn't have to really do much in terms I mean yes I did in terms of the work but you know in college I went to the bookstore and they gave me a box with all my books in it I didn't have to go through the aisles when I went to USC and they're like, oh, the bookstore is upstairs, and I was like, What do you want me to do in there? And you so know, I'm going into the <laughs> yeah. aisles, and I'm like,
0: what? <laughs> The Dewey Decimal System, what is uh, this? <laughs> I was like, uh,
1: Okay, well, uh, someone not gonna give me a box,
2: yeah. so you know, it was, it's,
1: it's everything yeah. was taken care of, yeah. and even you know, in, in TV, you didn't really have to have a brain, you're told where to go, yeah. you know, and yeah, you have to have a brain when you get there, but as far as what you were doing for the most part, unless it was something you pitched, mm-hmm. you are going where you're being told, and yeah, you always gonna have a boss who regulates things, but. It's just, I needed that work-life balance and it's, it's hard cause I'm not used to not going at hundred miles an hour, mm. but it's just, you can't, you can't go at that rate forever. And I felt that if I didn't, I was at the point where I was with swimming, where I wasn't happy and I was going into that, you know, that depth of depression and anxiety. And I was definitely at the worst probably in 2020 and last year was the worst I'd ever been mentally in my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just realized this isn't for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I probably had as much conviction in leaving TV as I did when I left swimming. Mm -hmm. And I doubted it for so long. Am I ready to stop? Am I ready to stop? And Mm -hmm. when I retired, I knew wholeheartedly that it was the right decision. Something clicked. And when I got this job, it was the same thing. Something clicked. And I said, you know what? I'm 30 years old. I'm just going to take a leap of faith and and do it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, I'm 30. I'm young enough that I can do something else. So you know, adding something else to the resume and trying something else. And if anything, it just gives your mind a break. And, uh, for me, it's giving me another taste so that as I get older, if I'm saying, you know what, no, I do miss news. At least I have that to compare to, but I needed to give myself a break because I haven't had one in a long time.
0: (laughs) It astounds me that you have said that, you know, 2020 was the worst you were mentally, because I didn't see that at all. And I think that goes to show like, you have no have no idea what people are going through behind closed doors. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I try to find, like, little things each day to, to brighten my day or to do if I'm feeling down. But as soon as you're around your friends, you know, you're on. You know, you're on TV. It's like you're on TV. You've mm-hmm. got to turn it on yeah. and act like this. Everything's
1: great. Just mm-hmm. like social media. It's like your highlights. Everything's fine. And that was, you know, because we had to post every day just now. Yeah. and there you know now that I'm not in that world and I'm like I don't I have nothing to post about today I don't want to post and I don't have to post right, like, there's you know, no pressure for the outfit of the day I don't or need the, to like smile and say oh good morning God. to the world every day like it's, right. you know like peace and blessings to you all but like I don't need to say it every day like, so, so
0: along those lines on the daily daily we love to brighten our listeners day And something that always makes me feel better Is playing games So it's game time Are you ready? Alright let's go We're competitors We can do this So the first game is inspired by the classic song It's called A Few of My Favorite Things And it's from The Sound of Music You know Mm -hmm, that movie Of course Julie Andrews Classic Are you ready? Okay Alright so Sometimes when I'm having a terrible day This is how it works I try to think of my favorites To distract myself Kind of remove myself from the situation And attempt to make myself better So I'm going to ask you eight questions And you have to tell us your favorite things And listeners You try to think of your faves as well, I'd love to hear in the comments what you all think. Uh, these are your faves that you should treat yourself to on your difficult days, difficult moments. You ready? Yeah, let's go. All right, what is your favorite
1: song to listen to on a bad day? Oh my gosh, that is like right off the <laughs> rip. I'm starting with a hard one that I can't. Uh, oh my gosh, I don't know because I love all different kinds of music, so it depends on the mood I'm in. I would just say I'm mean, gonna just say like overarching anything that you can dance to, like techno house music that's usually what's going in my car and it didn't matter if it was two o'clock in the morning when I was driving to work or you know if it's eight o'clock now or whenever I everybody would be like how do you listen to this it's eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I'm like for me it just you know makes me want to dance it makes yeah. you beat. you can't like you know if you listen to dancing music you can't be sad yeah, it just gets just you pumped it up yeah. it gets you pumped for the yeah, dance so I'll just say dance music because I can't even think of one off the top of my head okay what is your favorite dessert? oh gosh um, that's another one depending on the mood I have the biggest sweet tooth like, I don't, don't offend your French relatives if you don't say a French dessert <laughs> so just, that,
2: well,
1: disclaimer so no no I will say I will say so I, in terms of desserts I was very spoiled growing up obviously with French food so <laughs> my absolute favorite dessert is called the merveilleux it's in, Fr- it's in France in the northern part of France it's a specialty there it's like a meringue with a mousse and like chocolate shavings on top oh my gosh yeah 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 I'm so totally. that's,
0: my, that's my favorite <laughs> okay <laughs> that's, that's what ever so so everyone make that for yourself what is it called merveilleux Merveilleux. Okay, i'm <laughs> botching that okay what's
1: your favorite vacation spot mm, i would say france and now because the pandemic and this is now going on if i don't go this year it will be the third year in my life that i've not gone and you said summer right you just i go Yes. Yeah, every year since i was born i would spend my entire summers there and so 2020 was the first year in my life that i didn't go Wow. what is your favorite movie bad with all of these. Like, I'm like, I've never been someone who can just pick like a one and done. Um, you know, a classic that I guess like I was, ta- I'm just going to say this, cause this is one that I, I don't know if I still would know all the words, but growing up I did. A Walk to Remember, very sad movie, but, <laughs> but, but, but Shane West was so <laughs> cute that my 12-year-old self just loved that movie, so I'm going with that one. That or The Little Mermaid, because I think my dad still knows all the words to that one. Oh, that's cute.
0: <laughs> I love, I need Disney movie, I love. Okay, what's your favorite guilty pleasure? <sighs>
1: I really like those pimple popping videos. No, oh, I like those two. <laughs> those and like the earwax ones. Yes. That's I'm like it's so satisfying. It's so gross. <laughs> like you know, you're sitting there like, how did I just spend the last 12 minutes watching this? But yeah, oh my god. <laughs> or you know, those videos you see on Instagram where they're like cutting a lipstick, or like you know, those kind, Ooh, like satisfying yes. things Crushing, to watch. Crushing, like yeah, soap. yeah, yeah. Like there's just different things you're like, oh, that just looks nice, or like a nice clean cut of something. I don't know, like yeah. those kinds of videos, the satisfying, satisfying. Videos. Right before bed, I love those. Yeah. What is your favorite thing to do by yourself? Hmm. I would say. I really like, actually, adult coloring books. Oh, um, that's a great. It's something that you do by yourself, mm-hmm. and you pick on your own. You know, it's just in your colors. And I'm not exactly artistic in the sense that I can draw anything, but you just follow the lines. Yeah. And uh, it's just something to detach your mind, and it's, you know, something that you associate with your childhood. So it's... You know, I wouldn't say it's a guilty pleasure, but it's something that you don't necessarily think of an adult saying like, I like to
2: color. Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah, they have adult coloring books. And if you haven't, if you don't have one, I recommend it.
0: Oh, I love that. Okay. What is your favorite form of exercise? Keep it clean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, let's see. That also goes up and down depending on, um, you know, where I'm at. Uh, I would yeah. say actually, you no, know I'm going to go overarching with skiing. I'm going to go with skiing. Uh-oh. I was going to say in terms of it because I can't do it all the time, but that's my favorite activity. But okay. um, I love yoga. I teach spinning. Um, so you know, my dream was always to run a marathon. I've done a half. I don't know that my hip surgeon, after three hip surgeries, is thrilled about the idea of me wanting to do a marathon. So probably won't do that. But who knows? Huh? <laughs> that might be that might be one day. All right, final question. What is your favorite way to relax? Mm. Lately, it's been bath bombs. Believe it or not, bath bombs making a comeback. Mm-hmm. They were popular. Like they were popular. I remember, and especially I don't know if. If you remember, you remember those plastic ones that would dissolve with like the juice inside or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Those, but color the bath. mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, no, the bath bombs. I find that when you're in the warm water and it's almost kind of like, if you think of a weighted blanket for me, that like warm water, that pressure sensation on top of me, just kind of calms me and then in there I either listen to music I might be on the phone with a girlfriend I might have a book it's just yeah. you know and you have the aroma from a lot of those those bath bombs can have essential oils just things that smell nice maybe yeah. light a candle turn the light off um it's just it's it's peaceful and I'm someone who's cold easily so the warmth <laughs> is just kind of comforting I love that little self-care all
0: right, next game and final game is called Seven Zens. So this is gonna be a game where you answer seven questions to find out how you remain zen. Okay. Seven Zens. <laughs> so the first one is what do you do when you feel extremely overwhelmed and anxious? I mean, a bath bomb, coloring, those could
1: work. But. Um, so there's a couple things. So. One thing that I really enjoy, I would just say two, probably. I mean, one that we talk about a lot and let's talk about a lot is meditation and breath work. So, you know, obviously if you're having a crisis somewhere and you can't just meditate, right. uh, breath work's really easy to do. Um, something as simple as breathing in for four and really using your stomach, making sure that the stomach is expanding, holding it for two and then exhaling for six and just counting on those numbers or something more tangible too, that really distracts you and puts you in the moment is five, four, three, two, one. And it's five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can feel. Uh, I can't remember the other two. I can't remember what the two is. And then one is like one thing you can taste yeah. or something it's something along those lines. And it's just, you can make those up to whatever they are, but let's say you want to do 10 things you see. If you're in that moment and you're focusing on 10 different things that you can see, your mind is focused on that. So it takes your mind away from whatever the worry is. Will your mind go back? Right. Yes. You know, you're, we're, we're human beings, and if you're upset, your mind is going to want to go back. But as much as you can try and pull yourself away from that, and knowing that that's in your head mm-hmm. and the five, four, three, two, one is in the reality and the present, mm-hmm. it pulls you out of that. Because a lot of times when you're having a bad day, it's yeah, something bad could happen. But a lot of times we put extra pressure on ourselves or extra emotions on ourselves to make it even worse than it already is. Yeah. So I really like that technique because it takes me out of my head and, and into the present moment, yeah. you know, and, and it's simple. I, I do it a lot when I walk my dog, for instance, you know, they say, say a lot of people like we should act more like dogs because yeah. they're in the present, you know, they're looking at like a leaf fell in front of them. They're looking at the leaf. They're not thinking about like, Oh, the seasons are changing. I'm sad. I don't want it to be like, winter. you know, it's right are in the moment. They're excited about everything. And they're just mm-hmm. looking at, they're using their senses on, their walks and that's what we should do too so i encourage people to do anything that can bring them back into the present and out of their head i love that all right after a long work day what is something you do to feel more zen Mm -hmm. lately i've tried doing some yoga afterwards um so that's been really nice and then other days i mean as like unexciting as it sounds. I mean, honestly, a little Netflix and chill doesn't ever hurt. Uh, <laughs> Just Netflix turn,
0: uh turn Netflix your brain is off is my happy
1: place. Yes.
0: All right, what is something that you watch, speaking of Netflix, watch or listen to that makes you feel zen?
1: So Let's see. I actually just like browsing around podcasts. Um, There's, it's, it's, it's. You know, there's not one in particular. I've got a couple that I save. There's like one on anxiety. There's one. There's all different kinds of mental health ones. And I like to just sometimes go in and look at the titles and see if there's one that resonates with me. And a lot of them on the ones that I save are 10 to 15 minutes long. Okay and sometimes i just listen to one of those like on the drive home from work mm-hmm. um or in the shower or whatever something like that and yeah. it a lot of times because i can relate to them or resonate it almost makes me feel like you're not alone right you're not you're not alone. like listen to this podcast and like all the other people who are listening to it right like, there's a reason
0: sometimes you just need a 10 to 15 minute like nugget of relatability or like and you realize hope you're not and alone you're like I'm, I'm in this i can keep going yeah what smell makes you feel the most then? so
1: i'm big on smell if you, i mean here you're sitting on there's like 50 candles i love, love and i collect perfume um so let's see what smell makes me the most zen right now i have this like rose petal and vanilla candle going in my bedroom that smells very nice so i'll go with that one. Wow,
0: rose i love the smell of roses it's amazing um, all right, this is a little tricky one. When faced with adversity, what's the first thing you do? Cry.
1: No, I'm <laughs> um, that's a human reaction. We love it. We support it. Panic. Um, I usually, actually, um, I always go from one to you know the end. I, I, I start day one and I want to know everything. Right. So lately what I've been trying to do, especially as I start a new career, is be more mindful of the fact that I am going to be overwhelmed. I'm not going to know everything, and that's okay. Um, So lately it's just taking a breath. Uh, Mm. One of my therapists in the past, I I take a page from her book, her her favorite word that we always use was pause. Mm. I have a tendency to live life and fast forward, so I just have to remember to hit pause. And I've tried to do that more when something happens. If it's an email, or if it's you know an assignment or whatever it is, like reread it, really think about it. Is it as stressful as you think? What can you do? What, where is the stress coming from? Is it coming from someone who's putting it on you, or are you putting it on yourself? Right. Um, so lately, I've been able to pause more. I guess that would be. It's just even just saying the word pause in your head kind of gives you a signal of like, hey, I need to just think about this yeah. instead of reacting. I was very reactive. I didn't always necessarily process. Gotcha.
0: All right, how do you prepare yourself in the morning
1: to enter the day with a good mindset? So much like the podcast on the way home, it kind of flips back and forth. Sometimes yeah. it's podcast on the way there.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: I, it, it just kind of depends on the day. Sometimes I want music on the way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I want, you know, I want to listen to speaking on the way there. Yeah. For me, it's just whatever's going, whatever kind of, I listen to my feeling. If, if I wake up and I feel like this morning I went um, spinning and I felt like I was, you know, really great for the day and like primed and ready to go. Yesterday I wanted to sleep in and I didn't want to work out in the morning and that was fine. Mm-hmm. Listening to my body, I think. is is how I get ready for the day best now is Before you know, you don't listen to your body because you have to push through everything. And now that it's not, you know, I don't have to be perfect on TV. I don't have to be perfect on the block. Do I have to execute my job well? still? Yes. Mm -hmm. But it's very different now. So my approach to it's not as intense. And I kind of just go with whatever the flow of the day is. If it's music, if it's a workout, if it's not a workout, I just Mm -hmm. kind of right now I'm letting myself live in that space without the guilt and the pressure of it.
0: And I feel like oftentimes in the morning, people are like, I got to make my coffee. I got to get out the door. Mm -hmm. I got to move the traffic. And that idea of a pause, like a morning pause, like just breathing. Yeah. Like just sometimes it, when I'm sipping like a morning coffee or I first get up, I'm like, what are three things that I'm thankful for today? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to be something huge and tremendous. Like my eyes open. open up. It's like you know. I'm just really thankful that I watched an amazing show last night. All right, you know mm-hmm. the little things in life. Yeah. So when do you feel the most at peace with yourself? Final
1: question. Of your seven zens. Mm, my seven zens. When do I feel the most at peace? When I'm not crying. When I'm not having a nervous breakdown. Um, no, I don't.
0: You know, I think... Uh,
1: I think if you would have asked me this prior, I would have told you, like, when I'm hitting my goals. And instead of, like, mm-hmm. living and enjoying the journey, I was, I was always focused on the destination. Well, and, preaching at the choir. And, <laughs> you know, it's... I don't. It's. I don't know. I don't even know where to. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's. Repeat the question one more time, because oh. I gotta like rethink this now. It's like really throwing me for a loop. When do you feel at most peace with yourself? Yeah, I'm trying to. You know, it's it's tough. It's it's tough because I almost feel like now is when I feel the most at peace with myself. I think that's right. at that a... this stage in your life, mm-hmm. you feel the most. I peace think that's why I'm having a hard time mm. responding, because I feel like. I would feel at peace when things were completed. Like I'd feel at peace right. when I hit that time and I made that meet when I you know finished my live shot, when I finished my story, when I made page, like when I hit when I was supposed to hit on TV. Right. That's when I felt at peace because it was like, okay, I checked the box. I did what I needed to do. Right. And like it was like, always like getting line. to the finish line exactly. I feel at peace now because I feel like my mind, body, and soul are all connected. like my mind and my body, like what I want is, like, finally what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And it was prior. It's not to say that swimming wasn't or TV wasn't. It was, but it gets to a point where it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. And to feel the most zen, to feel the most at peace, you have to let yourself feel what you want and go for that. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like now is when I feel the most at peace. It's not necessarily that, you know, there's anything to it specifically. It was kind of like when I retired from swimming, in all honesty. Yeah. That was when I finally felt some peace yeah. and closure. Really? So I think now that I've at least for right now said goodbye to local news, um, I'm at peace now. And I think it's more of a, it's a more permanent state of peace. It's not to say that I don't have my stresses. Um, I still do. But the peace isn't quite as turbulent or infrequent.
0: Wow. I mean, that makes me so happy to hear as someone who admires you, looks up to you that you're at peace is... I love to hear that at this stage in your life. So where can people find you and
1: connect with the Root Center on social media, things like that? So, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that through swimming and TV, I I did grow some, some platforms that I can connect with people. So I am on all socials. You can find me. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, it's at Marge underscore Farrell. And then if you go to Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash TV Margo. Or it might actually be Margo. No, TV Margo. I, think. I was like, Margo TV. Um, and Margo spelled, you know, Bailey will spell it out here, but it's M-A-R-G-A-U-X. And then Marge, of course, is M-A-R-G-E. But yeah, Marge underscore Farrell or Margot Farrell. And I'd love for people to reach out. I love, you know, connecting with others. And I'm an open book. You know, as I, I quickly said yes to you with this podcast, I think it's fantastic. And You know, I think we have to be strong in numbers in in terms of speaking out and using platforms when you have them, because there are people who, who can't speak out, who don't want to speak out, who aren't comfortable. And so if you are, then I say use that voice of yours. And, you know, I say congratulations to you for taking on this podcast and this venture, because it's just one more person who's in the field of mental health and at least willing to speak up about it.
0: Thank you. Yeah, this is an issue that's very prevalent, very near and dear to my heart. And I'm so happy that we got to have this conversation. I think everyone's going to really enjoy it.
1: Well, I hope so. And if not, maybe mad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. Tune into the next episode of the Daily Bailey. Thank you guys.